This is the 12 Songs of Christmas, my podcast talking to the people who make and love Christmas music. I'm Alex Rawls, and if you're a regular listener, thanks. It's nice to know you're out there. If this is your first time, I treat Christmas music not as a soundtrack to the season, but as a part of musicians' musical, professional, and personal lives. Since GeoCities days, the internet has provided a home for people to connect over their obsessions. Thanks for joining me and mine. If you haven't done so, I hope you'll check out some back episodes. This season, I've talked to John Resnick of the Goo Goo Dolls, Alan and Mimi from Low, Stephen Drozd from The Flaming Lips, and writer-podcaster Chris Malanfi to talk about how legacy acts, many of which are long dead, now compete with pop stars on Billboard's charts at Christmas time. In this year and previous seasons, I've chewed on Christmas favorites by The Carpenters, The Band, Outkast, and Dolly Parton. And I've talked about Beatles Christmas messages to fans, interviewed Robert Earl Keane, Chris Butler of The Waitresses, Trans-Siberian Orchestra, Isaac Hansen of Hansen, Eddie Angel from Los Straightjackets, and discussed A Charlie Brown Christmas with Bjornemans, a bunch of Nashville touring musicians who play the album nightly during the holiday season. I'm not sure how that's working out for them this year, but I gotta find out. This week, we have two very different conversations. First, I'm going to talk to Jim Brickman, the adult contemporary pianist and songwriter. He has recorded a number of Christmas albums, so we talk about the hows and whys, including how he makes them different. It's a conversation that interested me because I was trying to get a handle on what seems to me an essentially useful music, music that's made to fit into listeners' lives, particularly his Soothe series. I'm so used to thinking of music as an aesthetic object or a commercial object or both. Obviously, his fans appreciate his music on that level, too. But Brickman's music involves issues I don't normally think about, so it's good to get a chance to chew on that a bit. Brickman was scheduled to play a holiday season concert tour that had to be canceled due to COVID-19. But Brickman's decided to deal with it by playing a series of live stream shows on the nights he would have been on tour, with the proceeds from each of those shows going to the venues he would have played. After that, I'll talk to Jeff Plate, drummer for Trans-Siberian Orchestra. I interviewed Trans-Siberian Orchestra musical director Al Petrelli in season one, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I wanted to talk to Jeff because, much like Brickman, TSO would be on tour this season. They're on tour every Christmas season, and they usually spend it translating Christmas into the language of arena rock. But it can't tour either. Instead, they will do a live-streamed Trans-Siberian Orchestra show on December 18th, and I wanted to catch up on how that's going to work out. We'll get to Jeff Plate in a few minutes, but let's start with Jim Brickman on the 12 Songs of Christmas. Well, I don't come from a musical family, so, you know, I, I think I fantasized about the idea that every Christmas uh, we would all be getting together and singing around the piano. And so whenever I saw families that did that, I was always jealous because we didn't do, I was the only one playing the piano and nobody else really cared one way or the other. (laughs) Did your family have any Christmas music related traditions, whether it was songs that records they pulled out at Christmas time or caroling or uh, anything you know, again, like that? Again, this was 
this was pretty much on me. Oh wow! So um, I would, I was the one that bought the Nat King Cole Christmas album and the Carpenters Christmas album and the John Denver and the Muppets and all those albums. Do you remember what your first was? I think Carpenters, because even when I was a kid, I I just uh, well I still do love that music and I feel like there are a handful of definitive Christmas albums. I think the Nat King Cole is probably my favorite. Uh, of course, a couple of the Johnny Mathis and um, not as much a fan of Bing Crosby, but uh, I love Mel Torme. I loved um, Andy Williams. Actually, my family, I would say the, the one that they had was Andy Williams. Andy Williams today seems so hard. You think now about Andy Williams and realize the only Andy Williams songs people know are our Christmas songs. And I always think that's so fascinating to realize that people, you know, people once had these, you know, completely vibrant recording careers and that time has sort of erased everything but their Christmas music. And yeah. And I, and it makes me think when you think about people today, like, like in, you know, in 40 years, will people remember Mariah Carey songs other than All I Want for Christmas is You? Uh, will people know Wham songs except for Last Christmas? Yeah, it's very interesting. Very interesting. Um, you know, I interview a lot of uh, my friends on my radio show and uh, uh, through a lot of collaborations. What I'm noticing lately is pretty much everybody that I talk to who's a talented contemporary songwriter artist is all so influenced by standards and Broadway and things like that, that it's, it's almost like they, they're inspired by melody and lyrics of some of the great composers. And so even though it doesn't live on in their voices, maybe other than at Christmas, I feel like it's, uh, it's, there's still influence in a lot of the, contemporary songwriting certainly in mine sure um do you think listening to christmas music that your affection for christmas music helped in some way to shape the kind of music you came to make i think it's actually a little bit of the reverse in the sense that my style has always been very pop very emotional very inspirational um, very melodic and that that style of writing lends itself to writing about Christmas as opposed to the other way around. Okay. I think what I was, what I was thinking a little bit about is sort of, you know, the aesthetics of Christmas records from the sixties and particularly sort of the, you know, you know, music that either nodded toward, you know, the instrumental music that had an elegance to it that had a clear style to it. And I wondered, since these are things I always associate with your music as well, that if that was also, you know, if, if there was either echoes or you just, you know, well, or how did that work? My, my approach to Christmas music has always been to write a story or a, if it's going to be a romantic song like The Gift, let's say. Um, uh, the gift is just a 
love song. It just happens to take place at Christmas time. So I try not to, for the most part, I mean, I have a lot of Christmas songs, but for the most part, there the approach is write a song that is appropriate to play during holiday time or has a setting of Christmas behind it, uh, as opposed to writing a Christmas song. Because the, the problem with Christmas, original Christmas songs, is that everybody starts with the same idea in their head, which is the uh, Santa down the chimney, presents under the tree, you know, this list of things that the lights are bright, the carols, uh, carolers are singing, the angels, the, you know, there's this kind of litany of obvious things. And so I, I try to stay a little bit away from the redundant and the trite. And I can t always tell when I hear an original Christmas song, if it's good or, or not so good. At the very beginning, the first two lines tell me everything about how they approached it. And so, you know, I have two, two styles of Christmas songs. Story songs that take place with a backdrop. So it's people and relationships or love, but the backdrop is Christmas. Or silly, very like the latest one, fa la la and ho ho ho. Something that is intended to be just fun and lighthearted, not um, not too much of the, you know, the the trite, I guess. sort of, you know, covertly aimed at children. And I wonder if one of the distinctions is that when you start talking about music that's, that's not aimed at silly and, and that it may be actually Christmas songs written for adults. Because I think about, like, Christmas Waltz is one of the handful of classic Christmas songs I can think of that I always thought was written for adults and that there are no children and it's you know it sounds like an, you know an adult party I mean it's a waltz so 
you know, is going to be whatever's happening is an adult activity. And, and I wonder if the change that you're, you're, you know, you're tapping into and, and I think I hear more and more in Christmas music and, and new Christmas music is that they are written with the idea of talking to other adults rather than trying to talk to children first. Well, that's true to a certain extent. I think um, the TV specials, I think, brought that into focus a little bit. So, you, you know, Rudolph, Frosty the Snowman, think uh, Charlie Brown to a certain extent. These were aimed, you know, at at kids and families. But there, there are also, you know, if you really break down some of the really big hits, um, you know, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Just right at the very beginning, not only does it sound like Christmas, but it of an immediate picture. It the first line. It's it like the the difference between writing. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, versus you know the snow is on the ground, the lights are on the tree. Is not anywhere near the same doesn't create the same um, feeling as starting a song with that. And if you really break down some of the long lasting songs, um, you know, have yourself a merry little Christmas, you know, is, you know, it's from a movie, but it is, um, it's tender and it's beautiful and it's emotional. And um, so the silly stuff is, you know, and the, some of the story songs for kids, the Rudolphs and, and that sort of thing. And then there are the really emotional classics. Sure. Now, I want to backtrack a little bit because we, we started off kind of talking about, you know, Christmas and your and as a kid. And one of the things I was thinking about, I know you started playing piano at like four or five. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know, I'm a rock and roll guy first. And so when I think of starting to, you know, of playing music, I think about, you know, making a raucous noise. And I'm wondering how you made the move from like starting, obviously, as a, as a, uh, as a boy playing piano into moving forward into starting to move towards an actual, you know, move towards a career at it. What was that trajectory like? Like what was, you know, was there a teenage rebellion in what you were doing or the way you did it? Or was there a different thought process? There, I don't think with any artist, you can be somebody you're not. And, and so, you know, uh, authenticity is at the core of why people connect to anybody's music. And so I, essentially I'm the same as, 10 years old, <laughs> you know, like, like most of us are who we are, you know, I mean, we learn, we grow, we, you know, all that, but essentially uh, the style of music that I was playing, my approach, my innate uh, appro- approach way of, of writing, playing is the same. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, I don't think that at least with me, that didn't really veer off the road it's like people ask you know do you ever just want to rock out and you know get out of that comfort zone and i think no 
<laughs> like why? I mean, that's not that's not true to to me. Sure. I mean, I I can I can do it. You know, I was a jingle writer for many years, so I can write in any any style. You know, you tell me write a reggae song, write a pop song, write a, write a country song. I can do it. But um, what comes to me naturally has never really veered off. And I think, you know, we all have those moments, of course, when we are headed into a career where we think, who should I be? And it's like the last thing that you think about is the first thing you should think about, which is, I guess I should just be me. Because first you're thinking, I should be like somebody I admire. I should be like somebody successful and do what they do. And not not thinking or, or realizing or remembering that the only thing that makes you unique is if you're not like someone else. So, I mean, you have to have people you admire and use as a as some sort of inspiration. Of course, you can't just be on your own trail, but um, but I think that at a certain point, you have to think, this is what I do. My hope is that people connect to what I'm putting out there because the minute that I pretend to be somebody I'm not or I fake it, it's going to be inauthentic to the listener. They're, they may not be able to articulate what they don't like about it, but they'll eventually be able to tell that that's not really me, I think. It's it's su- very subtle, but I think it's there. No, I understand that entirely. That it, Sooner or later, the one thing you have to commit to is, at some level, you. And that the one yeah. thing you have and, to and offer the- is you. Is you. And it's also the easiest. You don't have to work hard at it. You don't have to, you know, there's, I talk with a lot of my friends about this. Of course, most musicians and singers and actors are, are have an insecurity about their, uh, what they do. I mean, we all, the whole world does, but, but when you're putting art out there, uh, there's a lot of self-critique. And at a certain point, you have to just let that go and hope that, what comes out is something that people will connect with. Um, if they don't, at least it was authentic to begin with. The worst thing is faking it and having them not like it. Cause then it's not you. It's not you anyway. So it's, it's like, that's the worst. So how many Chris, do you know how many Christmas albums you've made? I think I have like 10 or something like that. So I suppose the obvious question is, are, are Christmas albums good business? Uh, it depends who your audience is. You know, I, it's completely in line with what I do. Christmas is, it's just a obvious natural extension of what I do. It's not as if it's out of character in any way. The other thing about it that's, that's unique to me and I think important is that I'm an instrumentalist. So there aren't a lot of solo piano Christmas albums. There's instrumental like Trans-Siberian or Mannheim Steen, that kind of thing. But those are all very, you know, loud and big. This is peaceful and, and tranquil and, and the best thing about 
doing piano instrumentals at Christmas is that these inst you can do instrumentals of classics and hymns without comparing them to the definitive. So I could play, you know, White Christmas, and you might even hear in what I'm playing Bing Crosby singing, but you're not comparing my voice to Bing Crosby's. So, because I believe that the that these classics, first of all, they're classics. That's right. why we call them classics. And they don't need to be done a million times. They're, you know, people want to. And so you're asking me about, you know, why Christmas? It's just a natural extension. It's something unique. There aren't a lot of solo piano Christmas albums. And so um, I think there are a lot of people who do Christmas albums because they think the record company thinks they're, they're good misses who really it's not in their wheelhouse to do it. And I don't think some are fantastic when they do that, but some others, it's, it just seems phony to me. attitude towards Christmas albums, you know, you see everyone, you see every year, you know, different the websites looking for clickbait will have their worst Christmas songs, uh, listicles. And I've always thought the worst Christmas album is the one you completely forget exists. One where every decision is so banal and so obvious and likely so mediated that you forget you heard it almost while you're listening to it. Whereas, well, that, that yeah, that comes. I think that mostly comes from the covers of classics. Sure, which is why uh, I've always written at least a third to half of the Christmas album as original. Sure, because otherwise, me recycling all these songs. The other thing about instrumental is you can do songs that that are not necessarily the big hits and have like, there's not a lot of pop vocal versions of God rest you, Mary gentlemen, for example. Right. But if you play it on the piano, it's very Christmas. So you, there are a lot, it's a lot, there's a lot more uh, material that you can cover when it's instrumental than when you're doing vocals. Right. It seems like, and I want to touch back a thing you said earlier, and I think it connects to that thought is one of the things that drew me to Christmas music as a subject to you know pay attention to and to sort of delve into was that it always struck me as a musician's challenge because it's a body of material that, as you say, people know. And so the question is always, can you think of something to do with this 
that has a reason for a reason to occupy three minutes of your time and someone else's time. And, and I would imagine as someone who also has dug into it a number of times to go into these, into this music and think, is there something else here that I hadn't heard before? Or is there another way to go with this that's interesting and valid and that I'm ready to flag, uh, ready to sort of plant my flag on? Well, my approach to everything in my career and especially to Christmas is to serve the audience. And so the first thought I have is what type of vibe and time is it in the world? Um, and what do people need and how are they going to use it? Are they going to use it at a party versus are they going to use it to trim the tree? Uh, and so as a prime example this year, there are two things that I want to convey and and do for my audience. One is my album, Soothe Christmas, because we all need calm and we, we need to just try to, to take it down a notch and relax and just be. And there's gonna be a lot of time at home in that environment with the trimming the tree and the fireplace. And so I wanna create a soundtrack to that. The other thing that I did with, with um, cause I have two, I actually have two Christmas albums coming out. No, oh, okay. I the knew about Soothe. I other, just, I've heard Soothe Christmas. I haven't yeah. heard the other yet. The other is a charity for uh, Broadway, Brickman for Broadway, it's called. And it's for, to support the Actors Fund, 100% of the proceeds go to the Actors Fund for all the theaters across the country that are so challenged right now. And uh, so it's all Broadway stars singing my original songs. There's no covers of, you know, classics or something. But it also has, it's also very festive. And so what this year, what I did was festive <laughs> and calm. But because we need happy, right? And we need calm. But what I don't think we need is sad. Right. And I have, I could easily do, I've got a three or four very sad Christmas songs about, you know, I have, I miss you and we're not going to be together. And uh, I wish that I were there to me that that's heart wrenching right now. I, I, that's not the message because that just amplifies how challenging it is right now. I want to serve up escape and calm. Sure. Yeah, the I miss you is just too real this year. I mean, there's too it's, many. It's too real. And it's, you know, it's not comforting. Right. It's sad. And, you know, of course there's going to be that. The, some, of the, some of the songs are just inherently that. But um, I, I have a few. I wrote one last year that is just heart-wrenching. And I, there's no way I would put it this year on. It's just wrong.
when were when did you make these records? Um, I just finished the Broadway one, but the Sooth Christmas I did over the summer. Okay. Was it therapeutic to have have these projects to work on while essentially shut down? Yes, I, I played a lot. Not playing as much right now, but I played and recorded a whole bunch of things. Um, summer is usually my time uh, to write, so I, I don't usually tour that much. I, I Maybe 10 dates. It's really now that it's getting into the tour season. And, you know, we've made up for that because of the way that we're doing our concerts this Christmas. You want to explain that? That, that I, I thought was really interesting, and I was really glad for what you're doing. Can you go ahead and talk about it? Yeah, so it's called Comfort and Joy at Home. And, again, meeting kind of the needs of what it's like to be at home and not be able to go out to concerts. So pretty much everybody and their brother is doing a live stream, right? period. Like you passively watch it like you're watching a TV special. And I, I thought, you know, I want to provide a, more of a community feeling as close to what it feels like to come to see me at a show as possible. So we decided to take the tour that was set up for every city that we were going to go to and do a concert every night just for the play for the cities I'm going to uniquely to that city. So it starts Thanksgiving weekend. There's, I think, 50 different cities that we're doing every day, sometimes two a day, concerts for Seattle and, and Portland and Boston and Philadelphia and Wichita and Cleveland and Florida and, you know, all over the country. And so that it creates more of a community but what really makes it special is that we're doing it on Zoom. So it's interactive. I will see you. I'll nah, see your nah, house. Nah, nah. I'll see what you're wearing. Nah. I'll see what how your decorations are. I'll see what you're eating. Stuff I never get to do when I'm in concert. So, um, and you'll see me just like we're doing this now. So um, it, it's a unique way to come together not only on Zoom, but also as a community, as opposed to doing it for just thousands of people and you're just sitting there watching. I wanted it to be community. And then the most important thing is that a portion of the proceeds of every ticket is going back to the theater in your local market. So where you would see me, let's say in Wichita, you'd see me at the Orpheum Theater. So you're supporting that theater by us doing this locally something that we couldn't be couldn't do if we were just doing it. And then in addition to that, as if that's not enough, <laughs> uh, uh, you get a Christmas stocking on your doorstep filled with music and gifts and all kinds of stuff the week prior. So when you buy a ticket, you get the Zoom, you get the interactive, you get the meet and greet, and you get a stocking on your doorstep of fun things you can hang on your tree you can there's music popcorn bells snow a program a ticket all kinds of good stuff oh that's great one thing i'm not clear on is the are the the streaming are the shows going to be geo-locked 
or like if I'm like I know you've got you've got Baton Rouge is I know one of the stops. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. so basically, so, so someone in Seattle can go any, ahead and yes, buy the Baton Rouge yes. ticket. Right. That's right. Okay. If you yeah, I mean you know whenever you do something that's never been done before, it does pose a lot of questions and it's it's very hard to convey because it's like the first time it's um and you'll get the stocking well wait right. what do you mean uh, i get uh, the stocking uh, uh, well, you know i mean believe me it is when we were putting it on sale it's like wait do i have to live at baton rouge um you don't you can come to any so for example you're in new orleans and you want to uh, do the one in baton rouge uh or you have your parents live in Lawrence, Kansas, you guys could be together. Sure. Uh, what make what makes it geo-targeted is that if you are watching that one in Baton Rouge, a portion of the proceeds go to the Baton Rouge Theater. Yeah. So you kind of have to know that. But if you grew up somewhere, Denver, but you live in L.A., and you want to support the Denver Theater from growing up there, uh, you can do that. Sure. And um, then we're also doing a couple Christmas specials. <laughs> so one features special guests so uh i have on one of them comfort and joy at home on the 12th of december is i have train i have jewel i have matt nathanson leslie odom jr jane lynch dick van dyke is on one of them so it's like a it's like a christmas party and so that one has a lot of guests on it but so there's a lot, you know, I mean, it, it's a lot to take in when I explain it, but it's all at my website, jabrickman.com. So I'm going to go back to smooth Christmas for a moment. When you are doing smooth work, and I know you've got a whole series of smooth uh, albums. Soothe. Soothe, I'm yes. sorry. Um, when you have the, uh, on your soothe uh, albums, and particularly soothe Christmas, how does that change the way you approach the song or change the way you play it? It's actually very challenging because though it's very melodic, it tends to be a little bit ambient as well. So it's very hard for me not to, you know, play in tempo or aggressively. I have to pull back and pretend that while I'm playing, I'm getting a massage. Were there songs that were big that were bigger challenges than others to adapt to uh, soothe into that kind of treatment? I, um, the pop songs, if you if you try to cover, and I'm not big on covering something like the Christmas song. I, I don't. Um, I like the hymns and carols, but when you try to do a soothe version of a pop song and not a hymn, it it's hard because it's written with chords that move the way that they're supposed to in time. And when you slow that down, it's almost like it doesn't even sound like the song anymore. Sure. So I, I, I mostly picked hymns and, you know, something like Oh Come Emmanuel or, or Silent Night or songs like that. You can do that with, but you know, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. You can't do that.
Gift was your first Christmas album. Did you have any trepidation going into that one? Or your first time getting into Christmas music? Not not at all. Like I said, if you listen to any of my any of my Christmas songs and my pop songs, they're they're the same style, genre, approach. All romantic, all very melodic. In fact, I I have done Christmas versions of many of my pop songs. So like there's a song called Beautiful that I wrote for Disney for uh, Cinderella that has a Christmas lyric version because, um, you know, I've never seen anything this Christmas as beautiful as you. And like you rewrite the lyric. Right. Or the simple things. Uh, The first lights on the tree, the way you look at me, a thousand chime and church bells ring. The simple things are free. All the messages in my regular pop songs lend themselves to Christmas. That's what I was saying before, that there's not a major difference right? Um, between between the two, unless it really gets like fa-la-la-la-la or something like that. Sure. Um, but I have a song like with Kenny Rogers sang before he passed away that's called That Silent Night. And it's it's not a it's it's on a Christmas album and it takes place at holiday, but it, it's not a it's about being on tour and keeping the memory of this moment when I left you to go on tour and knowing that when I come back, I'll remember that that silent night when we were close and you know I'm gonna miss you and I've been on tour but I'm going to miss you until I come back and we recreate that silent night. So it's called that silent night, but it's not, you know, religious or there's nothing in it about Christmas. It's just a moment that takes place during holiday time. Right. Are there songs you've done more than once on Christmas records? I have. Um, There are a couple. Uh, There's a song called Sending You a Little Christmas that I wrote for the USO uh, about what it would be like to send Christmas to men and women who are serving in the military uh, because we can't be together. Again, that would not be on (laughs) the album this year. But uh, about 10 years later, Johnny Mathis uh, had agreed to sing a song on my album, which I was like, I couldn't comprehend, but I, you know, I wanted it desperately, but it was like, oh my God. So, and if it's Johnny Mathis, it has to be a Christmas song. So I played him a handful and he picked Sending You a Little Christmas. So uh, he re-recorded that song. And then, then he loved it so much, he made it the title of his Christmas album, Sending You a Little Christmas. And uh, so that one has been covered and then all of these Broadway stars on this album this year covered uh, everything from uh, uh, When It Snows, um, Coming Home for Christmas. Uh, so I have Kelly O'Hara, Santino Fontana. Um, I have uh, Fala La, Sierra Bagas, all these big Christmas uh, Hear Me uh, that Adrian Warren, who 
is doing a Tina Turner on Broadway or, in, or was. Um, but so they're all doing covers. So yeah, I've, I love doing them again with uh, different singers. You know, Broadway approaches them completely differently than a pop singer. How so? Well, they're different styles of singing. I mean, um, you know, you have like the night before Christmas, I set to music. So the first version I did was with John Oates. So when he sings it, it's like, "'Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house," like very um, conversational. Well, on the Broadway album, I have Norm Lewis on it, who's, who's fan, who plays Phantom and Phantom of the Opera. So he sings, "'Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house." You know, he narrates it. Right, right. So, you know, that that's what I mean. You know, they're they're just different approaches based on the style of music that they are known for. But these Broadway people, oh my God, can they sing? It, it is it is unbelievable what they sound like. Every one of them, when you listen to it, it's soaring. Every one of them is like the biggest number in any Broadway show. It's triumphant. And I just can't say enough about how amazing. I mean, I love pop singers and country, but this was something that takes three days with a country artist, no offense. <laughs> Took like half an hour with a Broadway star. A photograph, a blanket, some mistletoe, confetti snow, an angel to put on a tree, Santa Claus in crayon to make you smile today while you're so far away. I'm sending you a little Christmas Wrapped up with love A little peace, a little light To remind you of how I'm waiting for you Praying for you, I wanted you to see So I'm sending you a little Christmas of a good song when you hear it back, even if you wrote it yourself, is that it has dynamic range, that it goes somewhere, and that it that it has enough emotion in the way that it's written and the places that it goes that it touches someone. So that's how I know. If it comes naturally to a singer, that's how you know it's good, for one thing. If they, you know, if they have trouble with it, that means that the song itself is not crafted in a way that makes sense. And when a song isn't crafted in a way that makes sense, the listener also has trouble taking it in. 
Yeah. It's funny. I remember watching uh, New Orleans singer Irma Thomas in a session. And which, you know, one of those th- one of those things like, you know, the experience of watching and being in the room when a good, when a great singer is singing, you've obviously been there, but it's one of those things that I thought, I've got a really good job right now to be able to be there and hear a great singer sing, you know, 10 feet from me. Oh. Yeah. Well, and that's it- like what it was with, with Johnny Mathis. Like, I, first of all, I couldn't believe that my song was coming out of his mouth. Which I, it was like, it was so weird in a wonderful way. But he did like two, three takes and it was perfect. No pitch correcting, none of that. And the same is true with whenever I've worked with an iconic artist um, and I, somebody who's had a, a long career and is iconic in their own right, household name, let's say, um, they're always better than the up-and-comers. Kenny Rogers, John Oates, Olivia Newton-John, um, Donny Osmond. These are all people, even Dick Van Dyke, sang one, one of my songs, like, he's 93. And, wow. it, and it was like the second take was perfect. Like, I, I, I mean, it was, this, these are the parts of my, of my life when I hear them singing my song that are, you know, surreal. They, they do, when you're working with them, it's, you're just peers, and, which is, you know, amazing. But then when I look at it, I stand back from it. Carly Simon. Um, you know, like I just, those kind of people, um, Kenny Loggins, all these people that are to me, I grew up with or are icons. Um, and if they sound good on the song, then I figure it's well-written. Next up, Jeff Plate, drummer for Trans-Siberian Orchestra. I've seen Trans-Siberian Orchestra concerts a couple of times and remain fascinated by them. I have to admit, it doesn't really say Christmas to me. Really, it shouts Christmas and then fires off pyro cannons uh, and lasers, which isn't quite my idea of Christmas. But they do arena spectacle as well as anybody does and better than most, and it's really clear when you're in the room that it does say Christmas to a whole lot of people. How will it translate to a live stream? How will it translate to a TV, computer? I put that question to Jeff. So if this were a normal year, what would you be doing uh, on the week before Thanksgiving? Oh man, on the week before Thanksgiving, I'd be on tour. I'd be on a bus or I'd be on stage, but uh, we normally start rehearsing for these tours right, well, right the very first week of November. So we rehearse for basically a week and a half. 
tour starts generally in the middle of the second week of November, you know, give, give or take, just depending on how the calendar falls. But yeah, normally I would be, uh, I'd be preparing to do a show at any time. So, so it's a bit of a drag. I'll, I'll tell you, it's, it didn't really strike home with me until a, a few days ago when uh, somebody posed a question to me. I was like, wow, I should actually be on stage doing my thing right now. And unfortunately I'm sitting home, but, uh, but Hey, I'm not the only one, you know, this yeah. industry has been, been knocked off the track by COVID and you know, the world has for that matter. So yeah. and you're probably in a good position to talk about this. One thing that I've uh, sort of been fascinated by watching watching music communities. I mean, I cover New Orleans music community. And while there's a lot of focus on musicians simply trying to get paid, musicians trying to find income in these times, I've thought one of the more basic things is that, you know, from days when you made money and days when you didn't, playing was your thing. That was, you know, that was what you did. And I always think Mm -hmm. that's got to be a thing that people needed to think about a little more, about what changes not only when you don't get paid, but when you just don't even get to play anymore. How does that affect you? Oh, man. Yes. Well, I've been, I've been very fortunate that I've been able to do this for a long time. And, you know, it'll be a sad day when it does come to an end. It will eventually. But I, I don't feel like I've been cheated in any sense. But having said that, you know, with COVID coming along, it obviously you know, affected this tour, but as far as being home, you know, I would play locally with some friends that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, I teach drums and teaching in person doesn't happen anymore as much as, um, the online thing. I've really kind of, I've gotten used to it. And I guess the beauty of it is, is, you know, I'm teaching people in Portland, Oregon. Now I'm in upstate New York, but I've got, I've got students literally all all over the country. Whereas before I wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to do this, but, uh, but nonetheless, it's, uh, you know, you, you just gotta, you gotta figure it out. You gotta adapt. You gotta overcome and, and make the best of it. So, so I've used, I've used a lot of time this year working on a, a solo project, an original project that I've, I've been working on for a while. So it gave me a chance to really, to really finish that up. And th- actually the announcement for this is coming tomorrow, but, uh, but just in the scheme of things, you know, I'm one of thousands who got just knocked out of work and some people are dealing with it better than others. But I figure, you know, at some point things will get back to normal and we'll be able to get back on tour. So up till now, I've been very fortunate with what I've been able to do. But, you know, nonetheless, it doesn't make missing this tour any easier. So it is what it is. We'll just have to keep our fingers crossed and hopefully things work out again next year. Sure. So aside from working on a solo project, what have you done with your time? Uh, I live in the country. I have a, an 85 acre farm. So there's always something to do. Like my lifestyle really did not change a whole lot when COVID came around. Um, so I've always got something to keep me occupied. The, uh, you know, the job at hand being TSL and preparing for the tour and working on whatever projects are going on in the studio, obviously that all that all stopped. But uh, but I've been busy. Like I said, it's uh, you just got to kind of figure it out and roll with it. And as in as much as I got a little bummed out about the situation at times, you just got to work through it. So so all is good. Sure. So tell me about the uh, upcoming live stream. The live stream, the 
December 18th, 8 p.m. Eastern time. So this is, I mean, obviously when COVID really started picking up steam back in the, in the spring, I think it was pretty obvious to everybody that we were going to have to deal with this. And I remember telling my wife then that I was, I wasn't going to be on tour. I could just see how this thing was coming along. But, you know, the, the O'Neill family, Paul O'Neill's wife and daughter, management, everybody had their eye on this and was really holding out to the last minute. But the live stream is something that we, you know, we kept an eye on everybody else that was doing it. And I think the big, the big question with this is, you know, how do we present TSO as we normally present TSO, which is just an epic show. And, you know, the people involved, they're all the same people that put on our, on our, our live show. So I have no doubt this is going to be, this is going to be epic. It's going to look great. It's going to sound great. Uh, the band is, is made up of both TSO East and TSO West members anchored by myself with Al Petrelli on guitar, Chris Caffrey on guitar and Johnny Milton on bass. We've, uh, the four of us have, have been here basically from the beginning of TSO along with Paul O'Neill. Um, so this is going to be an interesting night and I, I have no doubt this is going to be awesome. I honestly do not know what the show is going to look like, but I'm pretty sure this is going to be this is going to be one for the ages. TSO East and TSO West. So when we first started touring with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, it was 1999. And at this time, Christmas Eve and Other Stories was released in 1996. Christmas Eve, Sarajevo 1224 was already a big hit on radio, a big holiday hit. And we had also released our second CD, The Christmas Attic. Um, so musically, we knew that something was really happening on that end. People were really digging TSO in the Christmas CDs that we had released. So the next question was, and this was being agged on by, by some other radio personalities and some other people who really wanted to see us try to do this live. So in 1999, we, uh, we booked a tour that was only seven shows. It was just a test run. You know, how are we going to pull this off was, was the main question. There was, there was more questions than answers at that time. So we did this seven-show tour. It was basically one one box truck and a couple dozen lights and, and some fog machines, and it was a success. It was received so well that the following year, we went from seven shows to 70 shows. And the main idea at that time was trying to keep the tour between Thanksgiving and Christmas Eve. So all of a sudden, we had more shows than we had days, and that's when the idea of splitting the original group into two came into place. So, so we took uh, myself and Chris Caffrey. We, we went to the East Coast. Al and Johnny went to the West Coast. And then we filled out the rest of the cast with, you know, a bunch of players that 
the management knew a lot of people auditioned and, and came came on board but but that began the two touring situation and and as it's turned out you know to this date our tour lasts between seven and eight weeks and between both bands we do close to 110 shows wow close to a million people every year between both groups and it's just unbelievable i mean to think that we would be you know not only using two groups to cover the country but both groups are playing arenas twice a day three days a week it's just unbelievable to think that where we started and, and what this has developed into over all these years but hey a great testament to paul o'neill and the music he wrote the stories he wrote it just connected with so many people and you know and here we are talking about all these years later yeah exactly yeah I, i've always been i love that idea that you know it had become so big that you actually have to have two siberian orchestras two trans-siberian orchestras to make it happen it's unreal it's unreal I, I remember one of the first arena shows that we did, and I was so blown away that we were just playing in an arena. <laughs> a couple of years later, we're playing the arena, we're playing the arena twice a day and selling it out both times. And it's just, it really is. It's just amazing what has happened over all these years. But, but you know, it's taken a lot of hard work, a lot, of, a lot of planning, great management people, Paul O'Neill's dedication and his energy to this thing, you know. Unfortunately, we lost Paul a few years ago, but, you know, his spirit is still with us and driving us all the time. So there's a lot of good people in place to make this all happen. Does it take adjustment as a drummer? I mean, I suppose any musician, sorry, as a drummer to play in the middle of all that spectacle? Like, you know, <laughs> like, like I know, like, you know, have pretty much all the pyro, not just cannons, but also like, you know, curtains of uh, curtains of sparks two or three different kinds of flame, you know, uh, I mean, if memory serves, didn't last year, didn't your drum riser, uh, rise up to form part of the, uh, marquee? Does yes. It, does it take yeah. adjustment to learn how to, to play with all that going on? Well, my, my advantage is, is I've been there from the beginning. So I've been a part of it as it's grown, you know, from year to year, but, but nonetheless, the, uh, and I still, you know, every time I walk on the stage, I think about, I think about when I was a kid and I saw Kiss on television. It was like, I want to do that, you know? And now I'm part of this band that, I mean, production-wise and show-wise, it really, you know, it's second to none. It, it'll rival anything out there. And it's just such a cool thing to be a part of. But, but to your point, there are light trusses moving above my head at any given time in the show, there's there's flame walls in front of me. There is stuff going <laughs> all over the place. And uh, yeah, my job is to really not ignore it. I, I It's hard. You can't ignore it. You, you have to be aware of it. But my job is to focus on holding this whole thing together because there's upwards of 20 people on stage performing. So with all the production going on, there's a lot of music and a lot of singing going on at the same time. And and yeah, it's just part of my gig, but but nonetheless, I get a, I have a very unique seat because I get to watch the audience and how they react, and it's pretty cool. It's pretty rewarding.
this year, you're actually going to be home for Christmas. As bizarre as that is, yes, it'll be the first time in, I think, I think 18 years. Wow. That I'll be home for Christmas. When, when TSO really, really got rolling, it, it all of a sudden, it, it took up. We generally left on Halloween for rehearsal. So Thanksgiving, Christmas Eve, Christmas. Uh, we have also played into January a couple times, so New Year's Eve. So, yeah, some of the major holidays at the end of the year, you know, I've not been home for. I've been with my TSO family, and there's there's a number of people in our cast that have been there for a long time. You know, Chris Caffrey's one of them, him and I. Him and I have been there in the East from the very beginning. But there's also, you know, management and crew and a lot of the cast members that, you know, they've all been there for many, many years. And we, you know, it's the extended family. So as much as I'm going to miss them, I'm certainly going to enjoy sitting home with a real Christmas tree and just chilling out and, you know, bringing in Christmas the right way this time. So hopefully next year it'll be, it'll be different. So what Christmas music will you listen to? on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day? Well, one thing that I always I always watch, I never miss, is Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer because that's that's been <laughs> part of my Christmas since I was a little kid. It's just one of those things. It's like, it just makes you feel good. It makes you happy. It, you know, you reminisce when you, when you watch something like that. But you know what? To be honest with you, it's going to be a mix of everything. I, I mean, I can't even think about it right now, but if, if I was on tour, I would probably be listening to something different than TSO. But I think the fact that I'm not touring it this year, this would be a good time to just sit back and, and listen to the music that we've created ah, and, ah, and really ah, enjoy it. And, and it, it, it'll be in the perspective that it's supposed to be. You know what I mean? Oh, that's great. But, uh, but nonetheless, you know, my wife, she, she loves all the old Christmas classics and all this and that. So I'm sure it's going to be a bit of everything. Thanks to Jim Brickman and Jeff Plate for the time and the talk. I'll put links to Brickman and Trans-Siberian Orchestra's live stream shows in the show notes. Brickman's live stream tour will start on November 29th, and you'll have special events with musical guests on December 12th and 23rd. Trans-Siberian Orchestra will play on December 18th. Happy Thanksgiving, and if you need a playlist for your Thursday, 12 Songs listener Mike Mailing shared his Happy Thanksgiving playlist with me, and I'll share it with you in the show notes. On Friday morning, I'll also post a 2020 Christmas music playlist just in time for Black Friday. I'll post other playlists and links to live streams at my 12 Songs of Christmas Facebook page. Thanks to AF The Naysayer for the theme music, and thanks to you for listening. We'll finish with one more from Jim Brickman. This was released after we talked. A one-off track titled, Fa La La, Ho Ho Ho. Talk to you next week.
snow was ever all that beautiful and i always tried to wish away the cold yeah but ever since you came to me girl i see and think so differently and i finally realized what christmas means 